there's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. October 1931. The sun bathed Maryland's Haverty Grace racetrack in golden light. Spectators packed the stands, combing through columns of complex odds as they gambled on some of the fastest horses in the country. Most of them were oblivious to 43-year-old Peter Christian Berry watching quietly from the stables. With the help of infamous gambler Nate Raymond, Barry had immaculately painted a star racehorse to resemble a young, slow colt and entered it into a big race. The ringer's odds were an astronomical 52 to 1. If it won, Barry and Raymond were in line to win thousands of dollars. It was the perfect grift. As the race began, Barry shifted his eyes between the track and Nate Raymond, who joined the reporters in the press box. It was clear that Barry's horse was faster than the rest, quickly separating itself from the pack as it went around a bend in the track. The crowd couldn't believe what they were seeing, a long-shot underdog beating out the favorites by a huge margin. No one was more overjoyed than Nate Raymond, who jumped up and down, grinning like a fool. Barry was excited too, until he saw his partner loudly bragging about the scam to anyone who would listen. Barry knew what would happen next. The reporters would start asking questions. He needed to get out of Maryland immediately before the entire house of cards came crashing down and angry gamblers started looking for someone to blame. Welcome to Sports Criminals, a ParCast original. Every week, we dive into the dark side of sports history and look at athletes who not only broke the law, but broke the rules and covenants of their sport. We'll also uncover how their actions impacted the history of the sport they played. I'm Tim Johnson. And I'm Carter Roy. You can find episodes of Sports Criminals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Sports Criminals for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Sports Criminals in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. This is our second episode on Peter Christian Berry, one of the most prolific horse racing cheaters of the early 20th century. Last week, we covered Barry's beginnings as a horse ringer in England. This week, we'll follow Barry's exploits in the United States and how he was finally taken down for good. In the fall of 1923, 33-year-old Peter Christian Barry moved from England to the United States. He left his entire life behind his wife, his criminal associates who had betrayed him, and everyone he'd ever known. To avoid unwanted attention, Barry disguised himself as a priest for the journey across the Atlantic. His getup was apparently so convincing that the ship's captain even asked him to deliver a sermon at one Sunday dinner. 
completely off the cuff, Barry successfully delivered a rousing lecture on the topic of good and evil. The captain and the other passengers had no idea they were listening to the eloquent words of a practiced con man. But though Barry was resourceful, there were some authority figures he couldn't fool. When the ship docked, Barry was forced to spend the last of his money bribing an immigration official to let him into the United States. Upon arriving in New York, Barry got a job as a stable boy for Sam Hildreth, one of America's most prominent horse trainers. Barry was attracted to Hildreth's success and hoped to work his way up the ladder until he could find a way to paint horses again. Much to Barry's surprise, the American racing circuit was even dirtier than the English one. Some reports show that more than half of the horses in any given race were doped by their trainers and were often prodded with electric shocks to make them charge out of the starting gate. Barry's new boss was no exception. His champion horse was heavily doped when he won the Kentucky Derby, and he sometimes had his jockeys throw a race depending on the betting odds. Barry felt like an amateur when he saw the widespread systemic cheating in the States, but he was confident he could find a place for himself in the ecosystem. He continued to bide his time, and within a few months, he was promoted to Hildreth's chauffeur. While working for Hildreth, Barry met a few members of the Purple Gang, a crew of Detroit-based bootleggers who wanted to get into horse racing. They asked Barry to do a little espionage and figure out which drug Hildreth was using on his horses. Barry happily did what they asked, stealing three bottles from Hildreth's car. They were filled with heroin and cocaine. Barry was paid handsomely for his services, but more importantly, he got his foot in the door of the American criminal underworld. His association with the Purple Gang gave him the excitement he'd been longing for, and he continued to do what they asked, even if that help meant sabotaging his boss. Barry also went to work capitalizing on the other connections he'd made working for Hildreth. One of his responsibilities involved cleaning up for the jockeys, who used a small electronic buzzer to shock the horses at the beginning of the race to get a fast start. The jockeys would toss the buzzers sometime during the race for Barry to retrieve later. While helping out, Barry became especially close with a jockey named Mark Fader. To make extra money, Fader and Barry started collaborating on bets. They developed a hand signal so that Fader could tip Barry off as to whether Hildreth wanted him to win or lose a given race. Barry started passing the information to his friends in the Purple Gang, who bet accordingly and cut Barry in on their winnings. The scheme was simple and profitable, but didn't always go off without a hitch. On October 22, 1925, Hildreth wanted his horse Euclid to win a sprint race. Fader relayed the instruction to Barry, who then told the Purple Gang. The gang responded by betting heavily on Euclid, causing the odds to shorten significantly in Euclid's favor. This was deja vu for Peter Barry. The same thing had happened in one of his first horse ringing scams in England. Except in this case, Sam Hildreth didn't make the same mistake Barry had. After seeing the odds flip, he changed his mind and bet on a different horse and told Fader to throw the race at the last minute. Barry got the word with only moments to spare. He panicked. He didn't want to know what would happen to him if the Purple Gang lost their bets. 
At the last possible second before the race began, Barry managed to tell the gang about the change of plans, and they switched their bets to another horse. Euclid ended up in third place. Hildreth and the Purple Gang won their bets by the skin of their teeth. Barry breathed a sigh of relief. But they weren't completely out of the woods. The crowd at the racetrack could tell that Mark Fader had blatantly thrown the race, and they made their displeasure known from the bleachers. A few weeks later, another horse that Mark Fader jockeyed did poorly enough for the local authorities to take action. They suspended Fader for the rest of the season. However, Hildreth didn't face any punishment. He was happy to let Fader take the fall. Barry was incensed by how Hildreth treated Fader, and the two men had a falling out. In 1926, 36-year-old Barry quit his job and moved to Minneapolis, where there was an even dirtier horse racing scene. In Minneapolis, Barry got to work building his own horse racing business. He managed to convince a local businessman to purchase a few racehorses for him across the border in Canada. But the deal wasn't exactly above board. The Canadian authorities arrested Barry for fraud. After being booked, Barry was released and given a court date in Winnipeg. The authorities had no idea who they were dealing with. Barry had no intention of going to Winnipeg. Instead, he fled back to the United States and moved to Chicago. He reportedly changed his name to Patrick Christie and bought two different horses, a beautiful $2,500 thoroughbred named Kalakawa and an unproven $100 filly named Bobby Dean. On September 6, 1926, a rainy day at the Lincoln Field south of Chicago, 38-year-old Peter Barry ran his first ringer on U.S. soil. Backed by his gangster friends, Barry used his skills with dye to turn Kalakawa into Bobby Dean. The horse had such long odds, Kalakawa stood to make Barry and the gangsters a quarter of a million dollars by winning the race, over three million in today's money. The weather, however, caused unforeseen problems. Specifically, it created muddy conditions on the racetrack that Kalakawa wouldn't handle well. Barry studied the track before the race and realized their plan wasn't going to work out as expected. He grimly made the track to the nearby hotel where the gamblers were waiting, champagne already on hand in anticipation of victory. Barry meekly told the gamblers the bad news, which they did not take well. They had already invested a huge amount of money into the scheme. So they told Barry that Kalakawa would be running the race, rain or shine. As Barry expected, Kalakawa struggled with the muddy conditions. Although it wasn't a complete disaster, he came in third place. Barry and the gangsters technically still made money, but nowhere near the quarter of a million they expected. Once the winnings were divided up, the gamblers made exactly $6.20 each. Barry could tell he was no longer welcome in Chicago after the race. Still in search of the easiest and most lucrative place to ring horses, he moved yet again, this time to Cuba. Barry adapted quickly to his new surroundings. He set up shop at the Oriental Park in Havana, a high-profile racetrack regularly attended by Cuba's president, as well as the mayor of New York City. At the time, the island was the wild west of horse racing. 
Rule enforcement in Havana was far looser than anywhere in the United States, and Barry took full advantage. Using Kalakaua as a ringer, Barry claimed he won 12 times over the course of four months, pocketing up to $3,000 per race. Barry won the final three races of the season in Havana with a ringer named The Import, racing under the name Belfont. Flush with cash and success, he decided to risk going back to the U.S. The first thing he did back in America was to exploit the real Belfont's phony reputation and sold the slow horse for a massive profit. Then he made even more money by betting against Belfont in the next race. The scheme gave Barry an idea for a new venture. To make even more money off his cheating, he decided to start running ringers and selling insider information about what horse to bet on. The scam allowed him to double dip, profiting off of his own bets and taking a cut of other gamblers' winnings. To get himself started, Barry bought a slow horse named Infante and entered him into a race in West Virginia. He knew he needed a sprinter to be the ringer, so he decided to use a horse named Gibbons, who had been sent to him to be treated for an injured leg. Barry chose not to tell Gibbons' owner that he was being used as a ringer. He believed that the entire operation would be quick and quiet. But the stakes were higher than Barry knew. Gibbons didn't belong to some rich amateur. It belonged to Terry Drugan, leader of the Violent Valley Gang. When we come back, Peter Christian Barry gets on Terrible Terry's bad side. Now, back to the story. On September 5th, 1927, 39-year-old Peter Christian Barry used a horse belonging to the infamous gangster Terrible Terry Drugan to cheat in a race. But Drugan wasn't in on the plan. Barry hired a trainer named Steve Maybe to travel with Drugan's horse, Gibbons, and act as its owner. At first, the con went smoothly. Drugan's horse, posing as a slower horse named Infante, competed in West Virginia and won easily. Barry had only personally bet $200 on his ringer to win. He made most of his money by selling the inside information to other gamblers. But Barry was never satisfied with an easy win. After his success in West Virginia, he decided to push his luck. He sent Maybe and Gibbons to New York, a far riskier state to cheat in than rural West Virginia. There, Gibbons again won a small race easily, but the owners of the competing horses began asking questions. Before long, they realized that Maybe was running a ringer. Maybe was in over his head. He'd only posed as Gibbons' owner at Barry's instructions. He tried to direct the angry owners to Peter Barry, but found himself left in the lurch. Barry abruptly went radio silent, abandoning both Maybe and Gibbons. Meanwhile, Terrible Terry Drugan heard through the grapevine that his horse was being used to run a scam. He sent his goons to search for the horse ringer and bring him to face Drugan's wrath. Peter Barry was in a serious bind. He had a horse under siege by journalists and trainers in New York and was now being hunted by a dangerous gangster. To top it all off, he was broke. He could never hold on to money for very long. Running out of options, he was forced to leave town once again before Drugan's men found him. In the fall of 1927, 
Barry fled over 1,000 miles away to Minneapolis, far away from Drugan's influence. Safe enough for the moment, Barry tried to start over. He got to work managing horses. Barry had his eye on a horse named the Roll Call, owned by his employer in Minneapolis. He planned to use the Roll Call to get back in the game once again. At this point in his horse racing career, Barry was more desperate for quick cash than ever before. As a result, his scams became less elaborate and riskier than in the past. With the owner's permission and Maybe's assistance, Barry brought the roll call to a race at Lincoln Fields in Chicago. There, he pumped the horse full of narcotics before the race, leading to an easy win. Barry capitalized on the victory by bringing the roll call to Baltimore, where he pulled the exact opposite con. He convinced the horse's owner to bet on the roll call to win once again. But Barry double-crossed him. He secretly doped the horse with chlorine to make the roll call lose. He then split the owner's cash with the bookmaker who'd taken the losing bet. Afterward, Barry skipped town. For the next few months of 1927, he bounced from city to city, traveling between the East Coast and the Midwest. Everywhere he went, he bought and sold horses, occasionally doping them to win or lose a race. On November 24th, the law finally caught up to him, and Baltimore police took him into custody. Ironically, he wasn't arrested for any of his horse racing schemes. He was extradited to Winnipeg to finally face justice after sneaking across the Canadian border a year before. But almost as soon as he was picked up, he got off once again. Winnipeg's government ultimately decided they didn't want to spend the money to ship Barry back to Canada, so they dropped the charges. The Baltimore police were forced to release him. For the next three years, Barry stayed on the move. For some portion of that time, he worked at a stable in Indiana, where he continued painting and doping horses. He also likely worked sporadically as a smuggler, moving horses illegally into and out of the country. In between, he stole from everyone he came across, often borrowing from acquaintances and never paying them back. Barry was so broke that when he did have money, he took to hiding all of it in the lining of his coat. He might not have been the most successful horse ringer. After all, the very best scam artists are never caught. But he was one of the most audacious, willing to take big risks and evade the authorities for years at a time. His willingness to keep going paid off. By the end of 1931, prohibition in America was winding down, and with it, organized crime. Terry Drugan, Barry's main boogeyman, followed in Al Capone's footsteps and was arrested for tax evasion in November of that year. With terrible Terry out of the picture, Barry emerged from relative obscurity and returned to New York City. There, he found himself in the orbit of Nate Raymond, an infamous gambler and prolific criminal. Raymond was exactly the kind of person Barry wanted to go into business with. He was willing to take big risks and had the money to do it. Barry wasn't worried about the violence in Raymond's past. After all, he'd survived the wrath of terrible Terry. In 1931, 43-year-old Barry walked into Duffy's restaurant in New York City to make Raymond a proposition. Barry wanted to buy a fast and expensive four-year-old racehorse named Akhenaten. 
His price tag neared $5,000, almost $85,000 today. He also needed an extremely cheap and slow horse named Shep, who would cost only $300. Barry planned to race Shep at the racetrack in Haverty Grace, Maryland. Known as the Graw, it was one of the most prestigious racetracks on the East Coast. It was a far cry from the small, rough-and-tumble tracks where Barry usually raced his ringers. Running a con at the Graw was a high-risk, high-reward gamble of its own. A slow, untested horse like Shep would have astronomical odds, making the potential payoff enormous. But at such a renowned track, scrutiny would be much higher. Barry, of course, was exhilarated by the risky proposition, and so was Nate Raymond. He agreed to fund the scheme, allowing Barry to buy the two horses he needed, plus an extra horse just in case. If everything went according to plan, both men could make tens of thousands of dollars each. Barry brought both horses onto a 10-hour train from New York to Maryland to do his painting on the go. He'd pulled it off before, but things didn't go as smoothly as they had in the past. At one point, while painting Akhenaten, the horse kicked Barry in the stomach. Barry passed out from the pain. He stayed on the floor of the train car for hours, slipping in and out of consciousness. Barry recovered just in time to finish the job, nearly passing out again in the process. Despite the rough start, the scheme continued as planned. After seeing the immaculate work Barry had done on Akhenaten, Raymond decided to bet big. With the horse switch made and the ringer in place, Barry and Raymond were in line for a massive payday. Akhenaten didn't disappoint. The star horse cruised to an easy win listed as Shep. It was the biggest success of Peter Barry's career. He and Nate Raymond netted thousands of dollars each, Raymond, seated in the press box, was elated by his victory and let everyone know it. He pranced around like a kid on Christmas. But when Barry saw Raymond's animated boasting, he knew he would have a problem. Raymond was already a larger-than-life criminal. He was attracting unnecessary attention to Shep's unlikely victory. And attention was the exact opposite of what Barry wanted. Barry decided there was no time to stick around and enjoy his win. He had to get out of town before anyone started asking questions. He collected his money, loaded his horses back on the train, and left Maryland in the dust. Almost immediately, as Barry expected, Raymond's antics aroused suspicion. The reporters in the press box knew something fishy had happened, and it didn't take much to guess there was a ringer involved. The organizers of the race came to the same realization. The next day, they hired two detectives from Pinkerton National Detective Agency to investigate the underdog's victory. The Pinkertons quickly determined that the race had been won illegitimately by a ringer, and they also found the name of the man who pulled it off, Peter Christian Barry. When we come back, Peter Christian Barry leads the detectives on a chase across the United States. Now, back to the story. In 1931, 43-year-old horse ringer Peter Christian Barry pulled off the biggest job of his life at the Haver de Grace racetrack. Along with famed gangster Nate Raymond, Barry had successfully rigged a race using his trademark strategy of painting a powerful sprinter and posing it as an untested youngster. 
The unlikely victory, paired with Raymond's involvement, brought unwanted attention onto Barry and his horses. After the race, he skipped town as fast as he could. Suspecting foul play, the race organizers hired Pinkerton Agency detectives to chase Barry down. Luckily for Barry, he had a slight head start. He hopped on a rail car to Indiana and sent his horses on a separate train, arranging for them to be shipped through New York before reuniting with him. Barry hoped the circuitous route would throw off the detectives. It didn't. The Pinkertons simply followed Barry's horses across the country. But if there was anything that Barry's life had prepared him for, it was life on the run. As soon as he heard that Pinkerton detectives were asking about him in Indiana, he packed up and made for Chicago. The Pinkertons found him there too, so Barry moved again. This time, he fled to Columbus, Ohio. As the weeks stretched on, Barry became more confident. Life on the lamb was just another series of gambles, and like with horse ringing, he couldn't help but go for the riskiest move possible. Barry eventually came full circle and returned to Maryland, hiding out right next door to the race organizers who were after him. He predicted, correctly, that it was the last place they would think to look. After a few months of laying low, Barry felt confident that the Pinkertons had lost his scent. So he decided to put his horses back to work. He started by racing Akhenaten again in Maryland, this time under the name Hickey. Unlike Akhenaten's last race at Havre de Grace, they avoided any undue attention. With his career back on track, 44-year-old Barry brought Akhenaten to Mexico in February 1932, racing it under the name Galemont. After that, they traveled to Miami. By this time, though, Akhenaten was at the end of his rope. All the races and the constant traveling had exhausted the horse. At the end of the race in Miami, Akhenaten's body gave out. He limped to the finish line on three legs. Making matters worse, when the race officials pulled Akhenaten off the track, they noticed his color didn't look natural. The dye was beginning to run. Barry, like his horse, was past his prime. The suspicious officials impounded the horse to investigate. Just like in Maryland, Barry knew it was time to run. He abandoned Akhenaten, got in his car, and sped away from the track. Not long into his drive, Barry picked up a hitchhiker and gave him a lift to the nearest town. After they parted ways, the hitchhiker tried to steal a watch and was instantly caught by police. Hoping to save his neck, the hitchhiker didn't hesitate to tell them where he'd been and who he'd been with. The police found Barry hiding in his car. After years of evading authorities, the most notorious horse ringer in the world was finally taken into custody. Unfortunately for the police, they couldn't actually charge Barry with any crime. There weren't any laws against disguising horses, and despite the evidence collected by the Pinkertons, the district attorney felt that they didn't have enough evidence to prosecute Barry for fraud. Instead of charging him, police tried to deport him. While they processed the deportation, the police allowed Barry to post a $500 bail. Just like in Winnipeg, as soon as he was released, Barry fled. Back on the run, Barry did the only thing he knew how to do. He continued ringing horses. Over the next few years, he traveled along the east coast of North America, from Augusta, Georgia, to Montreal, Canada. Barry knew he was living on borrowed time. 
and expected the police to catch up to him at any moment. But nothing could stop him from taking risks. In August of 1934, the 46-year-old arrived at the racetrack in Saratoga Springs, New York, with the intention of running a ringer. He and his criminal associates, including a girlfriend named Ethel, had one problem. They didn't actually own a fast horse. Without the cash to buy one, they decided to steal one directly from the stables at the track. Barry forged ownership papers for a horse named Easy Sailings that he'd been scouting. Then, in broad daylight, his accomplices attempted to swipe the horse from its stables so Barry could paint it somewhere else. The half-baked plan didn't work. The men barely made it out of the stables with the horse when the other owners saw them and reported them to the police. Barry, Ethel, and their accomplices were all arrested. Barry had an alibi for the theft itself. He was elsewhere at the time of the arrest, presumably preparing his dye and painting tools. On top of that, he claimed that the horse was actually the property of his girlfriend Ethel, and he was just moving the horse on her behalf. But Barry's alibis fell on deaf ears. The police knew his game and had no intention of even trying to convict him. They just wanted the troublesome Englishman out of the country and out of their hair for good. This time, there was no bail. Policemen marched Barry directly onto the first boat headed for England. After years of running, Barry sat on the ocean liner and watched the United States recede into the distance. He wasn't upset by his deportation. He'd had a good run in North America. He decided that after over 15 years of horse ringing, it was time to hang up his spurs. Back in England and once again penniless, Barry cashed in on his infamy and sold his story to a newspaper called The People. Unfortunately, the earnings didn't give him enough to live on. He then tried to go back to his old tricks. Barry was finished with elaborate horse painting. The bleach and dye had badly scarred his fingertips over the years, and he was tired of the exhausting work involved. But he continued attempting smaller-scale frauds, like doping the horses and tipping off gamblers. Despite his efforts, horse racing faded during the Second World War, with far fewer races and fewer opportunities for Barry to make money. His fame also had a downside. If any horse racing organizers saw him at the track, they immediately chased him off. Making matters worse, in the mid-1940s, racetrack organizers began cracking down on horse ringing. New rules to verify the identities of the racehorses were instituted, preventing people like Peter Barry from cheating the system. By 1951, 63-year-old Barry was reduced to selling supposed performance-enhancing horse tonics outside the racetrack, no more than a snake oil salesman. He offered two formulas. One was a combination of caffeine, heroin, heart medication, and rat poison. The other was just cocaine. By his mid-60s, Peter Christian Barry decided he'd had enough of horse racing and of his life of crime. He remained out of the papers and out of the public eye for the last two decades of his life. In 1973, he died at the age of 85 in a retirement home in London. In the end, Barry never truly hit it big. Everything he earned was always spent in a matter of weeks. But it was never really about the money for Barry. 
He spent his life chasing thrills and was willing to take major risks to get them. Though he thought he'd found the perfect way to rig the game, in some ways, Peter Barry was the biggest gambler of them all. Thanks again for listening to Sports Criminals. We'll be back next week with a new episode. You can find all episodes of Sports Criminals and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals like Sports Criminals for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Sports Criminals on Spotify, just open the app and type Sports Criminals in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Sports Criminals was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound designed by Mike Ramos with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Sports Criminals was written by Ryan Lee with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon and stars Tim Johnson and Carter Roy. 